Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Claire McKenna. You're listening to Changemakers, the podcast series that talks to people at the forefront of change. But you should never underestimate the power of a conversation to shape our opinions, influence the conversations we go on to have, the information we seek and share, and this is all part of the change process. Today's guest is Government Minister Josepha Madigan. I was almost fearful of having a politician on. Somehow they don't get the same maverick kudos of someone leading a grassroots movement. Often they're met with an eye roll and some cynicism, but the reality is that changing legislation and representing the will of the people is one of the most central and powerful changemaker roles. Myself and Josefa met when we sat together at a breakfast event for Spinal Injuries Ireland. I was struck instantly by her warmth and her openness. And when I contacted her office a couple of weeks later to invite her on, she was immediately accessible and agreed. Josefa is a busy woman. Her current remit is Minister of State for Special Education and Inclusion. She started out as a family law solicitor and witnessing the pain people went through during family breakdown. Upon her election as TD, she worked to bring about the divorce referendum in 2019, which saw an amendment to the separation duration for divorce eligibility, reducing it from four years to two. This had a massive impact on people's lives. Regardless of your political persuasion, this is a podcast based on people who want to make a difference. And I think you'll hear from Josefa that this is who she is. Motivated by people and the stories they tell, she has positioned herself as someone who can make legislative and funding changes, as well as using her voice to speak out on issues in the media and in the doll. She spoke out about her personal experience of gender-based violence, something she did not need to do but felt compelled to as she saw an injustice that she personally understood. I've continued to be struck by how, even in her position of power, she continues to be open, warm, funny and accessible. Her Instagram is a mix of her work, but also the juggle of family life and trying to get out for a walk or a run. We often see politicians as being far removed from ordinary people, and maybe that's true with some, particularly when we look at how we are represented. Most politicians are highly privileged and educated, but that doesn't mean they're all devoid of empathy. In this conversation, we talk about the cynicism towards politicians, the importance of critique and accountability, and the passions behind why she decided to put herself forward. I hope you enjoy. Josefa Madigan, you're very welcome to Changemakers. How are you? Good, thank you for having me here. Before we get into you and your, your career and, and what you're you're doing now, I listened to an interview with you where it turns out you have an ancestor who was a bit of a, a change maker, an advocate and an activist. That's right. Um, and he actually set up the land league uh, many years ago, um, James Daly with um, with Michael Gavis. So he was my, I think my my grand uncle or my great grand uncle. And um, he originally he was originally in obviously in 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 Mayo. Um, and I think there was some divergence of opinion with Michael Davis. So he didn't actually go onto the national stage, but he did start it at its at its very um at its, at the very beginning of the entire movement of the Land League and you know trying to advocate for tenants' rights. Um, you know, it would have been a very difficult time for tenants at that time. There was not, none of the legislation that we now have in place. And it, it was really the British who were the landowners at the time. So it was a really difficult period. And I think uh, a lot of, I suppose, revolutionary um, activism was happening. And he was right at the front and centre of it. And I, I'm glad to say at the right side of history, he was really trying to help the, the little person, if you like, um, so I'm very proud of that legacy. 
And, you know, I think it's a good lesson because often when we're living a certain way, we think this is the only way we can live and there isn't really anything that can be done. And it just takes somebody with a bit of spark and a bit of leadership to make those moves and and speak up and then real change can come. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I I, I would like to spend more time. My dad died a a few years ago now, um, but he often spoke about James Daly and no more than any other child growing up in, in a house, I, you know, wasn't particularly interested in that story. I mean, I very much regret that now. And I'd like to have that long conversation with my father um, around James Daly and, you know, how he got involved in the first instance. And he, he also, I think, um, set up the Connacht uh, Trib- Tribune um, in, in, um, in Mayo as well. And, um, you know, I think, I think for me, Claire, what's important about his story, um, and even around that time, there was a time in Ireland um, where nobody could afford not to be involved in politics. Uh, whereas now it's sort of looked upon as, well, you know, it's not really for me, or I'm not particularly interested, um, or, you know, but your very life depends upon it at that particular time. Um, so, so everybody was involved uh, on one side or the other. In some ways, maybe it was more clear cut than it is now. But as you say, it just takes one person to make a difference. Um, and I think we can often think that we can't make a difference, that it's too difficult to affect change. But that's certainly not true. Uh, it wasn't in his case, uh, not in my case, uh, and most uh, people that I know that put their minds to it, they can make a difference um, if they really want to. And did your dad live to see you become Minister of State? Dad didn't see me elected to anything, unfortunately. Um, he died two weeks before the local election. So he died on the 21st of April 2014 and the election was the 23rd of May 2014. And he died from cancer. He battled it for two years. Um, and to be honest with you, when he died, because he was really my biggest fan, I think all of my family would accept that. He was the one who really saw something in me and sort of motivated me to get involved. He had been... Uh, Fianafoil cancer, uh, I know uh, of a different party, and then he had resigned and become an independent um, councillor. But but when he died, I really didn't even want to continue with the campaign. I only had about two and a half weeks left, and I really didn't think that I could. But I kept hearing him in my ear um, saying, you know, keep going, keep going, um, and I did. So when I was elected then as a councillor um, on the 24th of May 2014, it was really a bittersweet moment because he wasn't there with me um, and all of those moments that I've had subsequent to that, obviously, you know, particularly uh, being, you know, in, in cabinet, uh, when I was in cabinet, I immediately thought of him. Uh, he would have loved the whole journey. He, I mean, he stood for every election that you can think of. The only one he didn't stand for was, was the presidential election, but he stood in the general election, the European election, the Shannon election, and got elected to none of them. Um, and I learned from him. Uh, he was really idealistic and um, really and not necessarily in a naive way um, but he really was a bit of a maverick and he um, really knew deep inside himself that politics in politics you know you can make such a difference you know at the stroke of a pen you can change people's life lives overnight um, and he he made the mistake I guess of telling people exactly what he thought of them um, which isn't always the most diplomatic thing to do when you're in politics. Politics is about working with everybody on all sides, cross party. Um, so I learned from that. I learned an awful lot from him. Um, but I, I always think it's a shame that he didn't go any further than he did. He was an, an incredible lawyer as well, um, because he he um, he would have been he would have made a big difference. So both your parents were involved in law. I saw you post a lovely picture of your mum being called to the bar in England and Wales. And again, you mentioned how proud your dad is and he's right there literally, you know, at her shoulder. Um, was that obviously what encouraged you to, to get into law? Yeah, in fact, I I mean, I studied French and German in Trinity College um, before I studied law. So I kind of, it's not that I was rebelling against my parents, um, but my my. I, one older brother and then there were four sisters my younger sister obviously isn't alive anymore but there was, there was one boy and five girls and and I, I sort of didn't want to follow their footsteps I didn't want to just do the obvious thing and become a lawyer like them so I 
I was very interested in languages. I still am. Um, I loved languages in school. So I did French and German in Trinity. And then I spent a summer working uh, with, in my dad's firm um, on Raglan Road in the summer, I think it was of 1992. And um, uh, it was just really a summer job. I hadn't thought much further than that. Um, I think I'd just finished college and wasn't sure what I was going to do. And then I just became really interested in people's stories, clients coming into the office and you know whether it was a probate matter or a conveyance or a family law matter, or, you know, there was just such a wide breadth of clients and um, private clients with different issues. And I liked trying, I liked the idea of trying to help them and trying to find solutions for their problems, which is what law is really about. Um, you know, it's about justice, of course, but it's also about trying to find solutions um, and, uh, you know, reach satisfactory conclusions for, for your clients. So I kind of became hooked then, uh, despite myself. So um, I went on to study law. So that's really how I got involved. Um, and I think law as well, is, it's not that it's like, it's, it is its own language a little bit too, a bit like, not like French and German that I studied, obviously, but it, it has its own language. It's all about words. And, you know, I'm a real bibliophile. I love books. I love words. I love um, getting to, you know, to the nub of things. And um, so all of that was fascinated me. And uh, it's, 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 a, it's a great subject to study um, in all its parts, whether it's constitutional, contract, uh, tort, criminal, all of it. Um, but I found myself very much drawn to family law and um, again, probably because at its heart, it's about helping people and, and, and trying to make their life a little bit better during a really, really difficult time. Um, so that's what I was drawn to. And I think I would say to anyone who is embarking on a journey um, to study law, that you really are best placed and in a better place to specialize um, because you can't be all things to all people. Um, uh, it does take a number of years to find out what area you want to specialize in. But for me, uh, family law, it was, it was, even though, you know, I remember my brother even saying to me, he wouldn't touch it with the, with the, with the barge pole because it, it is so, um, I suppose, emotional uh, for people. And you really, it can be difficult to ascertain the facts from clients when they're going through such a difficult period uh, in their lives. Um, but I, I, that's the area that I felt drawn to. Because it is tough, isn't it? Because it's marital breakdown, it's custody of children, it can be contention of will. So there's going to be an inverted commas winning and a losing side. So it must have been tough to find yourself in the middle of that at times. Yeah, there, there are absolutely no winners or losers uh, in family law. And, you know, I hate to say it now after doing it for 20 years and who knows, I may go back to it and you know in due course I don't know what life has in store for me but um it, there's little joy in it and if that's the way to put it and um, you, you know even though you might have helped uh your your you know your client who's just separated from her husband um, and her three children you might have helped them secure maintenance for those children or you might have helped to, to keep her in the family home um or whatever it may be or even get her full custody um, if, if he had particular issues that might have affected the children adversely. Um, yes, you are helping at that level, but at the same time, it's not really a good story, is it, anyway? Um, or I've obviously helped plenty of husbands as well who um, you know, have had arguments made against them around parental alienation. So the mother might have been poisoning the ch children against him unfairly. He might have been accused um, of domestic violence where it didn't happen. You know, so th th there's a lot of nastiness um, in family law and it's trying to distill the relevant facts uh, in a cogent way and present them to the court um, in, a, in a way um, that they speak for themselves uh, without the emotional part. I mean, I often have clients who would come in to me and their husband or wife might have been having an affair or even two affairs or, or three affairs. Um, and I would say to them, you know, that, that that doesn't make any difference in the eyes of the court. And they found that very difficult to understand because it's not, doesn't come under the term of conduct. Um, so 
the, the person who has been have or had been having an affair or having an affair at the time won't be unduly punished punished. So that was difficult for clients to understand. It's really ultimately about the children's best interests uh, and about the money. And it's about dividing up the money. Um, and uh, during the recession in particular, it was an extraordinarily difficult time. And um, it was all about um, sharing the debt as opposed to sharing any asset. Uh, there wasn't like many people just lost their jobs overnight. And they had absolutely no fallback position. Uh, there was little social welfare there to support them, particularly if they were self-employed, there was no safety net. I mean, we talk about the pandemic now and obviously it's been incredibly difficult for people, but at least there's been a safety net in terms of the e-wiz and the pup and um, other business supports. There was absolutely nothing during the time of the recession. Um, and had, had, had very, very difficult, you know, um, a very difficult time for people. So not alone were they financially poor, but th their marriage had imploded. So, um, you know, there, there's nothing that I haven't seen, Claire, probably, you know, when you're talking about family law, I've probably heard, heard it all at this point in time. And it is the, the, the financial strain, isn't it, that causes people to stay? Like we, we sort of laugh about the Hollywood marriage and how they seem to kind of walk out the door but when you're a multi-million dollar actor or actress it's quite easy to go and set up your life elsewhere but right now particularly with house prices with two income families it's very difficult for couples with families to separate and both have a family home that the kids can go to and from it, it, it you'd want to have a lot of money to be able to organize that and pay the the legal fees on top without question um you know i i, I remember speaking before about couples going from you know soulmates to cellmates um you know that i i did a lot of work around mediation um as well as you know i wrote a book on, on mediation um, and i would have mediated a lot of clients who were living under the same roof um, but simply couldn't afford, as you say, to, to separate. And not just in the recession, but even now, um, you know, because they couldn't afford the rent for one of them to move somewhere else. And they might have had a big mortgage, childcare fees, you know, that the cost of living is incredibly high. And there obviously is uh, assistance there in terms of, of legal aid for clients who wouldn't be able to afford a private solicitor. Um, but some of those that's obviously means tested so there were you know obviously clients who would fall above that threshold so they wouldn't qualify for legal aid and yet it would be very incredibly difficult for them to pay a private solicitor um, and then you would have seen the increase of lay litigants so a lot of clients who would have gone into court um, representing themselves where they didn't um, you know avail of the services of a solicitor for, for whatever reason and that made it you know much more lengthy uh, hearing for the judges uh, in the courts because they're obviously trying to make sure that they're impartial and that they're you know catering for these people who, who, who are representing themselves because they couldn't afford to, to employ somebody. So um, very nuanced and, 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 and quite difficult and you know I suppose people come in with the best of intentions and they say you know that it's really not about the money at the end you know but at the end of the day unfortunately it does end up being about the money because and people need to live and you know when you're when you're separating or divorcing it's a matter of fact that your standard of living is going to go down it's never going to go up it's always going to go down and um, because you have two incomes sorry two households now to to uh, to look after um, and th that's incredibly difficult so I you know as a, a married woman myself um now 20 years actually this year in May um you know, I would, would say to people, you know, not to break up and, you know, unless you absolutely have to, because, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a very difficult thing to go through the family court system. And you'll be aware, Claire, I've been calling for the, the new dedicated family courts as well to be set up um, so that there's, you know, more training for judges and for, for lawyers and, you know, remediation service on site and, you know, just... I suppose, an eat more streamlined approach to family law, no delays in court hearings or anything like that, because it's, it's to me, 
it's the most difficult area of law to practice because of the the the, the emotional side that's attached to it. And um, it was, you know, as as a solicitor and as a lawyer, and I've spoken to many family lawyers about this. And um, there is, you know, there is a transference there, and there's a kind of vicarious trauma, if you like, that's transferred onto you as a lawyer. Um, and you need to be very careful to make sure that you're not a counsellor and that you are their, their lawyer. And I would always uh, advise counselling for clients um, so that they can speak through the issues that are troubling them. And um, because it's not the job of the lawyer to do that. And, um, you, you know, you, you just cloud your own judgment and your own uh, vision if you're um, too empathetic if you know what I'm saying um, yeah yeah getting too to... emotionally attached then you're not doing your job but exactly. I, I can see even from talking to you and your interest in, in people's stories that that is perhaps part of why you made the career move and we'll get into the marriage referendum in a minute because you really did more to help couples with that than you could have when you were a solicitor but before we move on there was just one more thing I wanted to ask your opinion on I was contacted recently on social media by a father of a couple separating, urging me to please talk on the radio about this issue that in the breakup, nine times out of 10, the kids go with the mother and that he was really struggling with this. And it's something that we do here anecdotally. Is it is it factual? Is that something that needs to be looked at a little bit more? I think I remember Carol Coulter uh, looked at this and, and had a lot of data and some of the research and the studies that she's done in the area of family law. From my experience, uh, and I've represented probably more men than women on some occasions, and um, some like that, that, that you know, that, that balance um, between male and female, female when, when they're represented in court, um, doesn't bear that out. And one of the reasons why this misperception is out there um, is because women have tended to be the primary carers so it's all about who, who it's all about who the primary carer is and the primary carer is usually the mother uh, at home with the children um, and then the husband obviously you know so they can share joint custody but that's a very different thing thing to who's who's the primary carer so if the primary care is the mother then the home the family home will usually stay with her um, and or she usually stay in the home with the children um, and then the husband will have access to those children um, or they can share joint custody. And, uh, and you know, oftentimes that does happen. So they share every other weekend. Um, I think things are changing a little bit now, though, because men are doing more at home than they used to, because a lot of wives now work in a way that they didn't in the past. Um, so there's a lot more shared uh, care of the children. And so it's it's more more of a grey area as to who the actual primary carer is. In my house, for example, with my own husband, my children are now 18 and 16, so they're, they're obviously a lot older, um, but we would definitely be both primary carers, um, certainly not just me, because I've been working so much, and um, so we've had to share that burden. So I think it's definitely changing, um, so, but I understand where he's coming from. Each, obviously, each circumstance is different, um, Maybe if we looked at it uh, and looks back on the time period and who does most of the caring and, you know, all of that, it may well have been his wife. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And I suppose while we still have the gender pay gap, quite often it is the mother because it just gets so hectic and childcare costs are high. So quite often, whoever is earning less says, I'll stay home. We'll save on the childcare fees. You keep working. We'll stop having to juggle everything. Um, and then that's where they become the, the primary caregiver. So, yeah, that's definitely something that I hope is evolving. But you did make a, a change. When did that pull first come that that politics began to call? Um, it, it had been happening for a little while. I've been speaking to my father, as I, as I said, just I was always very interested in politics because I grew up with it, grew up with it uh, in, in, in my house and we have discussions obviously around it, even though my, my dad was of, of, of a different party. Um, and then obviously I went through the recession um, in, in my own firm. And I, I, I remember one particular client who, who committed suicide as a result of the breakdown of his marriage um, and just the, the lack of money and supports that were there. And I, I've been so 
distraught by what happened in this country um, at that time that I just said, I, you know, I remember my children were six and four at the time. And I remember sitting on, literally sitting on the couch saying, I, I, I just have to do something. This isn't just about me and my life. Um, this is about us helping the wider community. Um, so I decided to get involved, but at no point uh, had I ever considered becoming a politician myself. I actually uh, contacted Olivia Mitchell, who was a TD in, in Dublin Rat Down, which was now, which was then called Dublin South, um, and offered to canvass for her because the election was, the general election was coming up in 2011. Um, and she had taught in my old school, uh, Mount Anvil. So I canvassed with her and I just thought I'd support Fina Gale and I'd support her and we needed to change. We wanted to get the economics of the, this country back on track and restore our public finances to a point where they were um, in, in, in good shape. So I canvassed with her. I, I joined the um, constituency and I joined branch and just got to know people in the constituency, again, still not thinking or considering for a second that I would become a politician myself. And it wasn't until 2014 um, when Olivia said to me, would you be interested in running the local elections? And to be honest, Claire, I actually looked behind me to see that she talked to somebody else because <laughs> it really hadn't occurred at all. And um, in fact, I had seen my dad, as I said to you, lose so many elections and I remember the devastation that that caused that if anything I was never going to become a politician it was I was quite adamant about that uh, like why would you why would you put your face in a poster why would you put yourself through all of that you know hardship if you like um, but I decided to do it uh, I, I had that classic head heart struggle my head saying are you insane to do this are you crazy and you have a good job, you know, what, how is it going to help you to my heart saying, no, you can and you can help people and, you know, nothing venture, nothing gain. So I went with my heart I'm not really fully understanding it, maybe, but I followed it and I became a local councillor. And then Alan Shatter and I ran in the general election and, and then the, the rest is history, as they say. So it kind of. It took a while for my head to catch up with my heart, I think. Um, and as you know, I still practice as a solicitor when I was uh, a TD for about a year. I think it was June 2017. Um, so it was about a year and a half that I practiced. It was June 2017 when I, when I stopped because I actually just couldn't anymore. Trying to do both jobs. I was, you know, on a Monday and a Friday, I was in my law office. And then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I was in the door. Um, I didn't realise I, that I would have to give up my job because it's it's far too consuming being a TD and trying to do both. Um, and that was a really difficult time for me because my whole identity had been caught up with being a lawyer for two decades. And um, I had actually reached a point in my career where I was quite successful and, you know, I was doing well in Verticomas. And... It was like jumping off a cliff into the unknown, into the world of politics, which, as we know, is so um, uh, unpredictable and nefarious at times. And, um, and um, you know, and uncertain. So it was it was a, a, a jump in the dark. But I said, if I'm going to be a public servant, then I need to do it properly. Um, and I actually do think that all TDs you know, they really shouldn't have another job. It, it, it should be, it is taxpayers' money and um, you need to dedicate yourself to it wholeheartedly when you're here. Um, and that was my view. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And we met, yourself and myself, met at a Spinal Injuries Ireland event, and I don't even know how we got talking about it, but you had mentioned to me the Carl Jung quote about the first half of your life being about ambition and the second half being about meaning. So was that also a part of your your pull? I mean, you'd done so much as a family law solicitor was it time for, for something new? And, and did you feel you wanted to do something bigger and, and make bigger changes? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I suppose I, it, was, it was midlife. I was in my early 40s. I was reviewing where I was in my life. Um, and it's not to say that I didn't still have a lot to learn in family law, uh, but I also felt that I was I, I could do it with the back of my hand. Um, you know, you get to that stage after a certain period of time in any profession. Um, and I did, and I've always been off the view, you know, even when I was in school, you know, it sounds a bit nerdy. I'm not saying I was a nerd because I wasn't, but I was president of the Needs of Our World Association, which was about um, other cultures and uh, other peoples. And um, it was about looking after the wider community. And you're right, Carl Jung's quote is correct. Um, I think all of us, when we hit midlife, we review everything and where we're at. Um, and I just wanted to give back a bit more to society. And the recession propelled me to do that. And um, I didn't expect that I myself would become the public representative. I, I sort of wanted more to help behind the scenes. Um, but it's like that perennial question that people say they ask themselves, you know, well, if not me, then who? Uh, and that was the question that I asked myself. Um, and so I decided to do it and I'm delighted that I did. And you mentioned the divorce referendum. That's that will be of huge assistance um, and is of huge assistance to thousands of couples throughout the country who now have to wait two years rather than four years. And um, so it saves them emotional costs and financial costs um, and all of those things. And, you know, even if I left tomorrow, that's one good thing that I did. Um, and, you know, 81% of the Irish people agreed with that um, and, and voted thankfully um, to change the constitution. So as you, to go back to what you said earlier, it does take, it, it is just one person who can change and can make a change. Um, and I, I've done that, not just changing my profession, but, but actually changing the constitution um, through, the, through the goodwill of the Irish people. Yeah, and that's certainly something, even through one season of the, this podcast, I didn't really realize how we're all part of the change that, yes, there may be one person at the forefront driving it, like whether it's yourself with the marriage referendum or James Daly or your ancestors standing up. But us forming our opinions based on what we're being presented with is all very much part of the change. We're all in it together. We are all in it together. Um, and, you know, sometimes, you know, people can be ahead of other people. So somebody might say something um, and, it, and it, you know, it doesn't go down well. It bombs in the public narrative um, and, and, you know, it can take a while for the ripple effect to occur. I mean, if you think back to the activists in Repeal the Eighth, um, I mean, I was director of elections for the Yes side in Fine Gael, and a lot of those uh, incredible women in particular, obviously, um, who had agitated for that campaign for many, many years, literally since 1983. Um, and then it took a while for the Irish people to row in behind them um, and to get all of civic society uh, uh, to agree with the sentiment to have the, to have the, the eighth repealed from the constitution. And, and it was, um, but that took, that took a number of years. So it can take a while for, for change to happen. It doesn't always happen overnight. Um, and certainly as a, as a politician in here, both as a TD and as a minister at cabinet and as a minister of state, you, you know, you're dealing with a number of different people. So you're dealing within your own party, 
you're dealing with your parliamentary colleagues, you're dealing with politicians from all sides of the house, within the door, within the Shannon, you're dealing with the civil service and their views uh, and what they feel is palatable. You're dealing with the leaders of the parties um, and then you have your own constituencies. And so it's, it's, it's never ending. So you need to be the type of person that can bring people with you. And, um, you know, you can have a straightforward proposal um, but the route to getting there isn't always straightforward. Um, but, it, you know, it just takes determination and grit. And when you look at the uh, eight, repeal the eighth referendum, when you look at the referendum for same-sex marriage, it was really people's stories, people coming out and, and sharing their stories that really opened people's hearts and minds that even if their own values didn't stand beside for whatever other reason, they were open to having empathy and allowing choice for other people. And it's the it was the grannies down the country from different generations who spoke about beloved family members who were gay that really made everyone say, hang on. Yes. Why are we against this in any way, shape or form? So you can have the experts at, at one end, um, like yourself, who's setting up the political end, the legislative end. But the people need to, to come behind and have their their opinions shifted. And I sometimes think the politicians get a bad rap. You know, the PR isn't great. The setup of our media, the opposition parties is so that we're in constant criticism mode. And I know that's a very important part of a democracy, but we're not really looking at all the positive changes. I don't think that's discussed enough. Obviously, power breeds corruption in all walks of life. But I think a lot of the time we estimate good people who are keen to make a change and make a difference. Yeah, I, I guess it's like any profession, there, there are good people and, and bad people. Um, my experience in, in Leinster House since 2016 anyway um, is the majority, if not all, are here for the right reasons and they do want to make a change and, and they do want to make a difference. I, I do think critique and criticism are different things. Um, you know, I, I think it's important that politicians are held to account for the decisions that they make and why they make them. Um, you know, there's a public spending code, you know, the, 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 the taxpayer has to be satisfied that their money is being used in the right way. And um, we are held to, I think, to a different level um, than civilians, I suppose, on, on, on the basis of, of the public offices that we hold. And that's not a bad thing. Um, and there has to be transparency and accountability. But sometimes it can go too far. Um, and yeah, the, the, you know, and unfortunately, the media, a lot of it is, is, is the amount of tricks um, that a story gets. And as, you know, the story then sort of gets muddled up as to what it's actually about or what it was what it was about in the first instance. Um, and I think for politicians that can be difficult to take sometimes. Um, but it's par for the course and um, to a certain extent you get used to you know that level of scrutiny and that level of probity. Um, and it shouldn't ever let a politician uh, shouldn't assist them from doing their job and trying to do it well. And the majority of people, as I said, are here for the right reasons and um, that's not a bad thing. What was it like then on that day that the marriage referendum went in the direction you wanted and the, the separation time was reduced from it being an idea born out from all of your time working as a solicitor to something you put forward to something that was put to the country that then became fact? Do you remember that day and how you felt? I do. Um, I remember uh, I was in Dublin Castle at 20 to 5 in the morning <laughs> waiting for the results to come in even though I knew it was a foregone conclusion and like the, the soundings were good in relation to it it was just I just wanted to see it through and um, I was just very relieved I was really relieved to have ameliorated some of the hardship that people go through and um, you know I suppose there was only two solicitors that in the doll out of 158 TDs at that particular time, uh, myself and Charlie Flanagan. Um, I was the first female lawyer at Cabinet, um, whether barrister or solicitor. Um, so sometimes it depends maybe what professions are coming into the door that will dictate 
what's relevant and what's going to be on the agenda. Um, and I do remember when I was at Cabinet, when we were discussing referenda and different ones were discussed as to what was to take priority. Uh, and I really advocated strongly for the divorce referendum. Um, and I'm really, yeah, really pleased that it happened. And um, the stories were important, I think more so probably in repeal um, and the, the, uh, the, the same sex marriage referendum as opposed to the divorce referendum. And um, I think most people agreed with it. Uh, so there wasn't as much and maybe as a debate, which was, was no bad thing perhaps because it, it went through anyway. Um, but again, as you say, if, if I hadn't said it, it would never have happened. So that's good. And it's good for other people to see is that they can, they can affect change when they come in here. You've also been very vocal on gender-based violence. You spoke out at the doll, referencing your personal experience and speaking on behalf of other victims. And at the time of recording this podcast, the country is still reeling from the murder of Ashling Murphy. And everyone is keen to know what policy changes can be made or are underway to support women and show zero tolerance. So can you talk to us a little bit about that and the, the national preventative strategy and 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 can this be a watershed moment? Are things going to change from here, do you think? Yeah, and I, I said that on News Talk um, last Friday morning, that this has to be a watershed moment. Um, there has to be catalysts for change. I think as, as women, I'm sure, Claire, you'd agree, we, we've all found the last week or so just incredibly difficult. Um, and, you know, I don't know, I find myself waking up in the middle of the night thinking about Ashling and what she must have endured um, and her family and every time a woman is killed in this country we as women we all feel it and um, yes I spoke in the door yesterday on uh, violence against women and um, I was sitting near Anne Rabbit actually and we, we both found it quite difficult it's, it's a difficult topic to talk about um, and you know, even though I have spoken about it before about sexual assault, um, I you know, haven't given any detail around what happened to me. I don't think I need to. I think everybody identifies with what I'm saying. Um, most women have had some form um, of, you know, of sexual harassment or, or abuse or, you know, something has happened to them over their lifetime. So I'm certainly not alone in that. But for, for what Ashling went through and other women, it just has to end here. Um, I am comforted by what Minister Helen McEntee has said around the new strategy, which is in its third iteration, and that's coming out over the next number of weeks. And there will be a preventative strategy in that, um, I expect. And there'll be a number of different actions and timelines. Um, but I think the most important part is about this cohesion between various different departments that they all work together and have this joint upthinking. Um, but there's definitely an appetite, I think, this time to do something. It's, it's really incredibly important. Uh, gender inequality is something I've spoken about before, even when I was talking about the lack of priests in the Catholic Church or, um, or, or other uh, issues. It's, it's something that I don't shy away from because I, I think it's an important conversation. Um, I, the, the article in the Constitution 41.2 about women's place and women's place in the home. I think that has to change as well. I think that gives out a really strong signal to Ireland that women um, really belong at home, that they're doing their family disservice by working outside the home. Uh, like that, that's our that's a statement that we're, we're you know we're, we're showing to our, our five million citizens. And um, like we can't stand over that anymore. It's not about saying to women, oh no, you know, you're not allowed to stay at home and look after your children. Of course they are, and they're free and happy to do that. But if a woman decides to work outside the home, she's not neglecting her duties. Um, and that's really what it's saying. It's an archaic and a chronistic um, article. It really needs to be to be to be taken out. Um, but you know it's multifaceted, you know, when you're talking even about domestic violence. And I saw a lot of that in my practice of family law as well, you know, women looking for borrowing orders and protection orders and safety orders. And, you know, so it's, it's, it's there's a huge, huge, huge body of work to do, um, even uh, in Ireland, but also at an EU level and at a global level 
On that Article 42, I think it, in some ways I agree with 100% with everything that you said, and, and, and it's it's multifaceted from zero tolerance to victim support, but also it's the messages that we give out about women, but also men. Article 42 is not only saying something about women's place in society, it's also saying something about men, that men are the ones who should be going out. Men are the hunter-gatherers. They're not the emotional types. They're not the soft ones. We are. And I also think we need, with full sensitivity for the victims who have gone through something, I in no way want to condone it by saying, oh, it must have been a tough childhood for the men who were the perpetrators of that. But I do think we need to change the conversation with the social conditioning of women, but also the social conditioning of men. Is that something that you have gone through being the mum of, of two boys? Absolutely. Um, the, I, th- I think those ideals of what masculinity is need to be challenged on a regular basis um, and after Ashling's murder um, my husband sat down with our two boys um, I had spoken to them myself but I also wanted him to speak to them as a man um, in relation to what happened and how we talked to women and you know he, I thought I sort of listened in, in in the living room I didn't want to, them to know that I was listening but you know, so that they would be free to speak to their father as a man, as opposed to with me, where they might have felt they were going to edit what they said. And um, but you know, as as my as my husband said to them, it's it's not enough not to do anything. You have to call it out with amongst their male group, which is very difficult for teenage boys to do. But that's where it starts. It starts in the home and it starts in school. So you know, people have been talking about WhatsApp groups and you know, social media and different things. And, you know, we, we all see groups of teenagers hanging around and, you know, talking, but, you know, they could be leering at a girl or just making, you know, smart comments and, you know, everybody laughs and nobody sort of says anything because they don't want to be the one who's uncool or, you know, uh, the one who's going to be ostracized by their peer group. But their peers are incredibly important to them. Um, and, and, you know, it'll, it'll take a strong teenager a strong child to do that but they have to start doing that and I think you know the sex education that is given in schools at the moment the primary level probably suffices it's probably age appropriate the secondary level the post-primary school um, sex education has gone out for consultation which I think is a really positive thing because that really needs to be looked at in a serious way um, and boys really need to be told at, at the outset you know, that these things can escalate. The sentencing needs to be looked at for very minor crimes. It needs to be more robust, in my view, so that, that it's, it's, it's kicked the touch at the very outset and a very strong signal is given by the courts that it just simply will not be countenanced. So there are many, many, many issues uh, that need to be looked at. Um, and it's not going to happen overnight. It will take a period of time, but I do think it can be done. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's a grassroots up and a top down, you know, as we said already when it comes to change, we're all involved. I am going to let you go, but I wanted to touch before I let you go on your current remit, Minister of State for Special Education and Inclusion. I mean, they're two massive topics. How do you even begin to approach your responsibility like that because you touched on sex education there I mean school and children is really where it all starts that's where society builds that's an opportunity for us to to change the conversation I mean when I look at the school curriculum in in many ways the way we are starting to look at inclusion the different school offerings we have um the speed of diagnosis for those with special needs I know there are still wait time issues but it's there it's talked about more than it ever was for, from generations before. But when you're looking at your remit, do you have to just break it down and, and deal with one issue at a time rather than be overwhelmed by the sheer size of the responsibility? Yeah, my, my remit is, is, is special education um, and the inclusion part is around that. Um, interestingly, when I was at Cabinet, and I was at Cabinet for two and a half years, under Ministry for, for Culture, Heritage and the Gales, so I had a budget of about 330 million. The budget I have now is over 2.1 billion. And um, so even though I'm a Minister of State as opposed to being a cabinet, 
the responsibility is huge. It's actually three times the amount in terms of the budget anyway. And it's also bigger in terms of the people, if you like, that I'm representing. And, and, and I look at myself as an advocate for children with special needs, whether it's Down syndrome or autism or, or many of the other complex additional needs that children have. Um, and it's really important to me that they're included in, 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 in the education system. And I had a meeting yesterday with um, As I Am, I was actually launching a document for them. And just as an example, of what Adam said around inclusion. You know, he said diversity uh, is when you're invited to the party, but inclusion is when you're invited to dance. Uh, and I think that really hits the nail on the head. Um, and for me, it's about making sure that we've adequate special classes for the children, adequate special schools, um, adequate places in mainstream, and that they get the supports they require. And also to, to make sure that the schools are amenable um, and welcoming uh, from a cultural perspective to children with additional needs. You know, whether it's the school staff or the principals, and the majority of them are, um, but it's also the parents as well of, of children who don't have additional needs, you know, that they will embrace um, diversity. Because again, what we were talking about sex education, the same applies to children with additional needs in a, in a different way, that they, you know, need to be included um, and children need to, you know, I suppose appreciate that that that's the way it is um, and it starts in school and in and at home and and you know children our children no matter what their background is or 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 what um additional need they have so all of that is is um really really challenging and it's a really challenging role it can be very fulfilling as well when I do something uh, for someone and again help them so if I help get a child get an additional place but the families that I've spoken to have been through so much over such a long period of time and have had this real fight on their hands and this real battle with the Department of Education, you know, to get special class places and special school places amongst other issues. Um, and that's something that I'm trying to, to help solve for them. Uh, and I hope in years to come that, you know, as the very first Minister for Special Education, that there will be a legacy there uh, of assistance and of support. But I think the fact that I have a budget of this size shows the acknowledgement and um, it's in recognition of how seriously the government takes uh, special education. Well, I think, you know, when people listen to this and they hear your backstory, they'll hear that you you have the experience, you have the skill set, you have the impetus within you. But at the centre of it, it's people's stories that, that, that drive you and that there's heart and compassion there. And I am glad that you are in their corner. And with that said, I'd best let you get back to it. Josepha Madigan, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much, Claire. Thank you for listening to Changemakers. If you enjoyed the podcast, I would love if you would take a moment to rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people to find the podcast too. Take care. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.